The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love. That lasts forever Know His hope And sure salvation I will trust in Him Though the world Falls around me I rest And know That He has found me Christ the rock Is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, Pastor is an acrostic which stands for Preaching All Salvation Through One Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. Presently, by God's grace, we are undertaking a complete exegetical study of Paul's letter to the Romans. In our last episode, we examined Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 20. In this episode, we continue our trek verse by verse through Paul's epistle to the Romans. Keep in mind, as stated, that Paul is now on his third missionary journey, writing from the city of Corinth to the church at Rome, where Paul had not yet visited. Let's continue our study of Romans with chapter 2, verse 21. Here, for context, Paul continues the uh, rhetorical questions that he began in verse 17, where he says, Behold, thou art called a Jew and restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God. Continuing from there, Paul begins to give a series of hypothetical accusations against those who are legalist, saying in verse 18, the legalist supposedly knows God's will and approves the things that are more excellent 
and are instructed out of the law. And in verse 19, that the legalist is confident, knowing that they are the guide of the blind and a light of them who are in darkness. In verse 20, the legalist is an instructor of the foolish and a teacher of babes, who has the form of knowledge and the truth in the law. In verse 21, Paul reaches the culmination of his hypothetical accusations and then asks a question, saying, quote, Thou therefore which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Continuing in verse 22, Paul asks further, quote, Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Unquote. So here in verse 21 and 22, Paul attempts to rip off the veneer of self-righteousness and of hypocrisy, which those who engage constantly in legalism attempt to portray. Paul essentially holds up a mirror and forces the legalist to look in the mirror and to examine themselves. Paul reminds the legalist then and now that there are some 613 laws, ordinances, statutes, rules, and regulations within Judaism. So, just to be generous, let's just use the common Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, and with this in mind, let's have the legalist sincerely ask themselves honestly and sincerely questions such as, Have you ever stolen anything? Have you ever taken something which did not belong to you, no matter how small it was? Have you ever committed adultery? Well, some will perhaps say no, to which we can respond, okay, good. Now ask the same question according to the spirit of the law, which Jesus declares to be just as binding in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28. There Jesus says, quote, but I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her, hath committed adultery with her already in his heart, unquote. And for that matter, we could use the same spirit of the law mental exercise with the rest of the Decalogue and ask likewise questions saying, okay, if not adultery, then how about idol worship? Have you ever made anything in life to be more important than honoring God? Have you ever used God's name in vain in your own mental dialogue? Have you always maintained honor of your parents in your own mindset? Have you ever looked at somebody or dealt with somebody in your mind and thought to yourself or pondered the idea of murdering them? Have you ever looked at something which did not belong to you and had this longing, coveting type of mental exercise where you wanted it beyond all reasoning? Have you ever spoken a white lie or given information to someone which wasn't clearly and honestly and totally the truth and just bent the truth to accommodate and created false witness? 
So the answer to these questions is obviously at some point you have violated the law. And the point of this exercise is that once we look at our entire lives, there is no person out there ever who can honestly claim that they have kept the spirit and the letter of the law. There's none, as Romans chapter 3, which we have yet to study, will point out. Further, from God's perspective, according to James chapter 2, verse 10, James there says, quote, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all, unquote. And this is the problem for the legalist who imagines that they're going to get to heaven or that they're going to please God based on their good deeds outweighing their bad, or that they're going to get to heaven or please God based on the fact that they are trying really hard and sincerely, and that is the issue. But the Bible makes it clear that that is not the issue. The issue is that once again, the law reflects the total character, nature, and attributes, the righteousness, the holiness, and perfection of God. And the problem is that we all are human and finite, while only God is God. Thus, we can never work and become God. We can only rely on the fact that for those who are in Christ, who is God, that when God the Father looks at his elect whom he has chosen and whom he has purchased, God sees Christ his Son in whom he, God, is well pleased. Continuing with the accusations from Paul against the legalist in verse 23, we read, quote, Thou that makest thy boast of the law, through breaking the law, dishonorest thou God, unquote. Here, verse 23 points out the hypocrisy of self-righteousness. Pretending that any human can achieve righteousness and please God via our own merits does not honor God. Instead, the greater the knowledge and the greater the understanding of God's law, then the greater should be our understanding of how completely we have fallen and how far we have fallen from God and where we are. The more that we ignore this and continue to pursue a failed legalistic path, the more that we expose our own stubbornness and rebellion. That which we assume to be a method intended to honor God, in fact, dishonors God because legalism only serves to honor ourselves and to look at ourselves and go, how good am I? Verse 24, quote, For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you as it is written, unquote. So, if we can just step out of the revolving door and the circular reasoning of self-righteousness and legalism and look at the actual results versus the claims, 
it becomes obvious that the claims do not match the results. Instead of the Jew or the legalist being an example of God's glory manifested in weak flesh, the reality of hypocrisy provides an example of what appears to be God's impotence. As a result, the onlooker in this case, the Gentile, finds that God is portrayed by the legalist as a false god, as a pretender whom they ultimately are further alienated to because of this hypocrisy that's being displayed. Now the quote, as it is written, unquote, in verse 24, refers to the unseemly behavior and act of David and Bathsheba, quoted in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, where Nathan the prophet confronts David with having murdered Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, in order to marry Bathsheba as an example. As you recall, there in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, we read, quote, And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. Howbeit, because of this deed, thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. Unquote. So here, simply put, Paul uses the famous incident of what happened between David and Bathsheba as an example where his behavior of hypocrisy and committing sin, known sin, was an example of how the unbelieving world of the Gentiles in that time took a look at what David had done and thought to themselves, see, this is what being a man of God is like. This is what being a believer in Yahweh is like. And as a result, they had a disparaging view about God in general. And thus, God's name was quote-unquote blasphemed among the Gentiles by virtue of David's behavior. Verse 25, quote, For circumcision verily profiteth if thou keep the law, but if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision, unquote. Here, Paul reminds his Jewish brothers that circumcision, which was considered to be the badge, the proof of truly being one of God's chosen people, was and is only valid if one keeps the entirety of the Mosaic law 100% 100% of the time. Failure to keep the law 100%, 100% of the time, only served to prove that whether a person was circumcised or not, that the circumcision was invalid if they broke the law, and because of their failure to keep the law, they were, for all intent purposes, uncircumcised. In other words, it's not an outward ceremonial act, whether it be circumcision or something else, which proves an inward reality, but rather an inward reality to which an outward ceremonial act stands as witness. 
Verse 26, quote, Therefore, if the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? Unquote? Here in verse 26, replace the first instance of the word uncircumcision in the verse with the Gentiles, those who are not Jews, by DNA. Essentially what Paul is asking is that if a non-Jewish person, with their outward fruits, with their outward behavior, demonstrate the nature and character of Christ and his finished work, then consequently we understand that the only explanation for this is that that person, whoever they may be, has the indwelling Holy Spirit providing that person with Christ's nature and Christ's character, which is what we are seeing being manifested as the fruit, which is circumcision, in the sense that they follow all of God's laws because it is Christ doing that in them. It is God's power which provides regeneration of the heart and the cutting away of our old nature, the flesh, to accomplish spiritual circumcision of our heart. This spiritual circumcision is the substance to which the type of physical circumcision points to. Verse 27, quote, And shall not uncircumcision which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee who by the letter and circumcision dost transgress the law? Here in verse 27, Paul provides two facts. Fact number one, uncircumcision is the natural state of man. We are all unregenerate. We are all in sin and rebellion by nature against God. The state of circumcision being more than a medical procedure performed on a male. Instead, Paul is referring to the state of humanity and the fact that all mankind is born into sin by our nature being fallen. We are separated from God and we have no covenant relationship to him. This is our nature. Fact number two. When those who are not Jewish by blood, i.e. the Gentiles or anyone else who has not been physically circumcised, are then born from above via relationship with Christ, and as a result of receiving a new nature via the indwelling Holy Spirit, we bear fruit and we fulfill the law, that result stands to judge those who should know better, who in fact hypocritically transgress the law, and physical circumcision, which is the type of foreshadowing a changed heart and nature. This result stands to judge those who should know better. It stands to judge those who in fact hypocritically transgress the law. It stands to judge physical circumcision, which is only a type foreshadowing what will ultimately be, through substance, a changed heart and a new nature given through a relationship with Christ. Verse 28, Paul begins to conclude his argument here, saying, quote, 
For he, whoever he is, is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh, unquote. In other words, simply put, true circumcision is an issue of the spirit and of something seen by God and viewed through the prism of seeing fruit in, per, in people's lives as a result of that relationship. But, for example, ultimately God's selection of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, etc., was an example of God choosing his elect people for his own sovereign reasons. These people turned out to be ultimately, in a generic sense, Israel or the Jews, but in a broader substantive sense, God was selecting and choosing a group of elect people to himself was not based upon race or gender. It was not based upon outward characteristics, including physical circumcision. Instead, God's selection and covenant with the Jews stands as a type wherein God is choosing according to his sovereign will and grace people who have done nothing to deserve being cho chosen. Instead, like Abraham, the qualifying act of being chosen is, this, is the sovereign will of God and then is later ratified by God giving them a heart whereby they may believe and trust in God, which then God sees as righteousness. Paul will, in fact, later expound upon this concept as his letter to the Roman church continues. Verse 29, quote, But he, whoever he is, is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter, and whose praise is not of men, but of God, unquote. So, Paul here verifies the above theory that we've been discussing. What theory is that? Well, namely, that the true, quote-unquote, Jew is not a Jew because of anything outward, i.e. blood type or physical characteristics or chromosomes, etc. The true Jew is a Jew because of an attitude, a belief, a mindset, a faith, as well as the fruit of their actions which uh, flow therefrom. Likewise, the true circumcision is not some medical procedure on the male human anatomy, Instead, the circumcision, which truly stands as the symbol of a covenant relationship with the living God, is that of the heart. In other words, it is that miraculous event where God, by his sovereign grace, opens our eyes, transforms our heart, and like uh, Adam, who is yet to take breath and has been formed by God's hand from the dirt, God breathes life into our spirit to quicken us. We are born from above by the indwelling Holy Spirit, which abides in us by and through a relationship 
and a belief in Jesus the Christ, our Messiah, our Lord, and our Savior, we Shabbat, we rest in his finished work on the cross, moment to moment, and we are reconciled to God via his propitiatory sacrifice. Our praise, our righteousness, does not come from ourselves or our own inflated estimation of ourselves via some works of self-works, of self-righteousness. It does not come from any horizontal comparison to another person and what they have done or failed to do. Our ultimate praise comes from God the Father, who, when he looks at us, sees his Son, Yeshua, dwelling and abiding in us via faith. God sees his Son, Yeshua, in us. He is always well pleased, and it is Christ who gets the praise. This concludes chapter 2. We then continue with chapter 3, which is still flowing with the thought by Paul regarding the Jew versus the Gentile. Verse 1, quote, What advantage is there being a Jew? What profit is in circumcision? Unquote. So here, in verse 1, Paul rhetorically anticipates the logical question which some would conclude from what is the previous chapter. Uh, the question is if salvation is ultimately an act of God and an issue of the heart of man which due to God's grace and election has exercised faith in God as the source of imputed righteousness, then what advantage or what profit is there in being a Jew or what profit is there about outward customs such as circumcision? After all, salvation is not about outward demographics and customs. It's about inward spiritual realities. This is the question that Paul asks. What's the answer? Verse 2, quote, Much, every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God, unquote. So, basically, Paul here reminds us that while we're talking about types and shadows which give uh, clarity and substance to these, the spiritual uh, dynamics which God is intending to show, he is nonetheless giving a historical narrative and physical realities and promises to real people in real time and in history. So in verse 2, Paul begins to expound upon the fact that these realities exist. Paul answers his own question, saying that the Jews were in fact entrusted with God's oracles, his sayings, his utterances, his promises, his historical narrative, which speaks of who God is and what he's doing in redemptive history. And yes, all of these things were types and shadows meant to tell us the larger story that salvation is provided only to those whom God sovereignly chooses, like Israel, 
i.e. the Jews. Yes, this is true. But God also made promises and covenanted with a physical group of people in history known as the Jews. Thus, because God is faithful, that is one of his characteristics, every promise that God made to the Jews, i.e. the house of Israel, is still in effect and trustworthy. Were this not the case, God himself would be a liar. If, if we can trust God about his promises to the house of Israel, then we can trust God about his promises to those who likewise are the substantive elect, which are represented by Israel in type. Both type and substance are included in God's promises. Verse 3, Paul gives a hypothetical rhetorical question. Quote, For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? Unquote. So here, the question is, does the fact that there are those who deny or rebel against God reflect on God's faithfulness? Is God to blame for the fact that there are those who are unregenerate? In both instances, the answer is no. The misunderstanding here flows from a flawed, humanistic, secular understanding of God's attributes. Today, as has always been the case, people like to adopt a version of God which they can personally, quote-unquote, feel comfortable with, they can approve of. And typically, God becomes a God of undefined love, where God loves everybody and everything equally without any regard to what is involved. Meanwhile, we deny that God has any other attributes, such as, oh, let's say, holiness, righteousness, justice, mercy, faithfulness, etc. No, God is perfect in each and in every one of his attributes eternally and equally. Thus, if God speaks and declares a thing, he must and will be faithful to fulfill what he declares in order to be perfectly faithful and trustworthy. Meanwhile, God is perfect in all of his attributes, and the moment that he abandons or forgets one of his attributes for the sake of another, then at that moment he ceases to be perfect in all of his attributes. So, applied to this verse, we understand that sin, faithlessness, apathy, or unbelief on the part of man that is the ultimate responsibility of man due to our nature. It is only when God steps in that his grace and his mercy 
make it possible for any man to exhibit faith in God. For the time being, this concludes this episode. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening.